So let's start with prayer. It's going to be a great, going to be a great series, it's going to be a great sermon. Father in heaven, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us today. We just want to echo the prayer that Marty just prayed. Father, we want and long for you to do great things in this church and in the lives of the individuals and the families that are here. Father, we have a lot of people that are here with joy in their hearts and happiness in their hearts. And Father, may we never lose track and may we never lose sight of just how much of a privilege it is to move our own bodies under our own strength and under our own freedom and will to come to a place. Father, we have church members that would love to be here but cannot. Not that they are not, but they cannot. So, Father in heaven, we pray for those who cannot be with us today. We pray that you would be near to them, that you would, by your Spirit, be a comforter, a very present help in times of trouble. We want to remember especially Annette and her family. There are others. Father, we just pray that we would not take health and freedom and vitality for granted. Father, give us a strong sense of the gift of life. And forgive us for the thousands and tens of thousands of times where we have just taken life and freedom and mobility and health and security for granted. Father, help us to be aware of our privileged position. And may it make us humble. May it make us appreciative. May we have an attitude of gratitude. And Father, now as we turn our attention to Scripture, I pray today, Father, that this as the first part in a series would would begin to open us up to who you are and to who we are and to who the world is. Father, I'm praying for something supernatural, not just eloquence, not just words, not just a man. I'm praying, Father, for the Holy Spirit to come and do something really great really great in these hearts, my own included. Be with us now, Father, as we turn our attention to you. May you, by the Spirit, turn your attention to us, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. Um, So our sermon title, our series title, this is going to be a new series that we're launching, and the series is going to be on the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Now, probably... Most of you, when I say this series is going to be on the book of Jonah, you feel like you already have a pretty good sense of the story of Jonah, right? That's the story of the guy that gets swallowed by the great fish. And you might be thinking, how can you have, in fact, I even had a member say to me this week, how can we have a seven-part series on the book of Jonah? It's only four chapters, and the chapters are really short. Well, I can tell you that over the last several weeks as I've been thinking about this series and preparing for this series, it has occurred to me on several occasions that seven parts is going to be way too short. We're going to go with it. That's all the time we have is going to be seven parts to squeeze this in. But I wish it would be like 10 or 12. There is so much density in this amazing book. And I'm going to invite you to see this book afresh, to see this book anew. I know that many of you will have a familiarity with the text, a familiarity with the story, and you might even be thinking right now, you've got to be kidding. Seven parts on the book of Jonah, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that this is going to be Jonah like you've never seen it before. It's going to be a story that you thought you knew very well, a story that you thought was very familiar to you, that you were going to find challenging and and not just challenging, but powerful and inspiring. It's going to be great. To try and communicate the newness And the freshness of this series, I decided to call it in the felly of a bish, as opposed to in the belly of a fish. Now that that phrase there, in the felly of a bish, is going to have a deeper meaning as we get into the series. 
And um, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. So today our sermon is titled simply Part 1, An Introduction to the Book of Jonah. So if you'd like to try and locate the book of Jonah, join me there. Is that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? That's in the Old Testament. Very good. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. And uh, it's just a little book, four chapters, four short chapters, in fact. Four short chapters. In fact, the book is so short that in about 10 or 15 minutes, we're actually going to read the entire book. We're just going to read through it. It'll take us about oh, probably 15 minutes. We're going to read through it. That's not a luxury that's available to us really with the book of Matthew or the book of Acts or certainly the Old Testament as we've been through. But the book of Jonah is short, it's punchy, it's powerful, and we're going to read through it, but not before we do a few words of introduction. Let me start by putting this guy up on the screen. I want you to raise your hands if you don't know who this is. Raise your hands if you do not know who this is. Okay, exactly. Okay, put your hands down. Raise your hands if you do know who this is. Yeah, exactly. So basically, the cutoff age is about 20, okay? If you're over 20, you're like, I don't know who he is, maybe 25. I don't know who that is. If you're under 20, you know who it is. It's a guy by the name of Benjamin Hammond. But nobody here would probably know him by that name, Benjamin Hammond. That's his birth name. Why don't the young... Who is that guy? That's a guy named Macklemore, right? He's a well-known rapper, well-known rapper, and uh, he's from the Northwest, an area not far from where I recently moved from when we came to Australia. He's from Washington. We moved from Oregon. And Macklemore is, is hugely popular, hugely famous. And even though you, as the adults, might not know who he is, it's a virtual guarantee that your children do know who he is, right? If they're, the, if they're in their teens, I said to my son this morning, I said, hey, Landon, do you know who this guy is? He's like, of course. He just knew. He just knows. It's sort of a part of the culture. And uh, I was listening, actually, to a song of his a while back. I'm not a fan by any means. I actually find some of the stuff he says to be kind of odd. But I was listening to a song that somebody recommended. They said, hey, look, this is a challenging song. I want you to listen to this song. It's a, it's a song that, that they really liked, and they said, I think you're going to find this song challenging. And they sent me the link to the YouTube video, and the video was titled Same Love. Same Love. And in the song, it's got hundreds of millions of views on YouTube. Very popular song. The, the premise of the song, the thrust of the song, is basically his staunch advocacy of the, the right of, of, of homosexual people to marry and to connect. It's a, it's a really strong advocacy of the LGBTQ community, right? And so the person sent it to me and said, hey, well, listen to this and tell me what you think of it. And I listened to it, and I interacted with them, responded to them, told them what I thought of it. But there was a line in there that, funnily enough, was not itself directly about LGBTQ that caught my eye the most. And I want to share it with you here. It's a very short line. And in the sort of end of the first verse, Macklemore says this. He says, but we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. Now, let me just ask you, what book is he referencing? He's talking about the Bible. And, and he says it in such a way, and of course he's talking primarily about the Old Testament there. The New Testament was written much sooner than that, about 2,000 years ago. But, but he's sort of making a general statement here about the Bible and implicit in this idea, but we paraphrase the book. Come on! Come on! We paraphrase the book written hardy har har 3,500 years ago. And implicit in this critique is this idea 
that it's just, it, it, he doesn't even have to state the idea because it's to him and to many so obvious. And the idea is that something that old could not possibly have any credibility in a modern time. That's implicit in, in what he's saying. We paraphrase the book written 3,500 years ago. Question, Macklemore, if the book had been written 35 years ago, would that mean that it was more true or less true? Is there something about the passing of time that makes truth less true? Is there something about the passing of time that makes something that was at one time relevant and important and beautiful and and lovely no longer relevant and important and beautiful and lovely? We sort of have bought into this idea. It's, It's the modern consumerism that all of us have unwittingly imbibed, and it's the idea that the old stuff is generally bad and the new stuff is pretty much better. Right? We, we've absorbed this. It's just a part of the, the zeitgeist of the age. The iPhone 6 is so old. Now it's the iPhone 7. But the time is coming when you will think of the iPhone 7 as so 2017. Right? And you'll be thinking about the iPhone 8 and then the 9 and then finally it can't wait for the big 10. The iPhone 10 or the new car. I get a kick out of these car commercials. The latest and greatest. The 2017 is so much better than the 2016. Really? I mean, really, is it that much better? It's not really any better. Cars are getting incrementally better. Henry Ford invented the car some 150, almost 200 years ago, and the cars have only gotten incrementally better over time. Let's be honest. The 2017 isn't much better than the 2000. It's just that it's 2017, and we have this idea. We, we imbibe it, and we sort of accept that whether or not we really would put words to it, or we could even put our finger on it, we have this sort of consumerism impulse that I think Macklemore is tapping into here, and that is that if it's older, it's not as good, and if it's newer, it's better. New is good, old is bad. This is true also just in human beings. You know, we want to look young, and so people are getting their facelifts and their boobs lifted and their skin. Every, I, I don't want to look old. Because old is bad. I I need to look young. I can't have gray hair. I need to dye my hair. I don't want to look old. So there's this whole sort of aversion to old things. Right? That's the culture we live in. It's the the, the consumer consciousness in which we live in. And so in the heart of this song that was sent to me, he said some other things that were quite fascinating. But what I want to highlight here is this idea that we paraphrase a book that was written 3,500 years ago as if nothing more needs to be said. That alone is sufficiently dismissive. It's so old. It couldn't possibly have something relevant or important or timely to say in 2017. Come on. Well, the central moral imperative of the Bible is to love. Can you say amen to that? Now, here's a question. Have we got something better than that today? When Jesus was questioned, what is the great commandment in the law? And he responded, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus said that, when he was under cross-examination there in, in the Gospels, he was actually quoting from the book of Leviticus, which is the very book or books that Macklemore is referring to when he says, we paraphrase the book that was written 3,500 years ago. That's the writings of Moses. And yet the very, the very centerpiece, the very nucleus, the, the core of what the Bible's message is, is to love, to love God supremely and to love your neighbor genuinely. And I wonder if that is the thing that Macklemore and others are taking issue with. Do we have something better than love now? 
Have we moved beyond that? I don't think so. The stories of the Bible are ancient but never old. The stories of the Bible are ancient stories. True enough, 3,500 years ago, that's old. They're ancient, but they're not old. They're not antiquated. They're not obsolete. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, the reason that you and I and millions and hundreds of millions of other people value the Bible and read the Bible and take it seriously is precisely because it speaks so profoundly and powerfully to a modern situation. Nobody denies that it's an old book. Nobody's trying to say the Bible was written 35 years ago. It's, it's not that it's old. It's that it's timeless. There is a certain timelessness in these stories. Sure, we're not reading about people and, and their email and their iPhones, and we're not talking about, you know, Apple and Google and Microsoft and Facebook and Amazon, but, but somehow... When we read these stories, there's a relevance there. There's a timelessness there. We, we can see ourselves in these stories. Strictly from a literary standpoint, even if you step away from the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, there's a timelessness and a beauty to these stories. There's an identification that people have had for hundreds and thousands of years with Scripture. This timelessness seems particularly true of the story of Jonah. And we're going to spend the next seven weeks, this week and six more, going over the story of Jonah, a story that you might think you know really, really well. And frankly, you probably do know elements of it really well. This is the story of the guy that got eaten by the fish and then spat up on the ground, and then he went and he preached, and the city of Nineveh repented. That's basically the outline. I'm going to suggest that there is a depth and a profundity to this story that is hugely applicable to where the Kingscliff Church is right now in May of 2017. And not just in one thrust, but in a number of points of application, I think you are going to be astonished at the points of connection. Even though the story of Jonah occurred hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, Jesus did not regard it as an old, antiquated, and thus obsolete story. In fact, in a really remarkable way, Jesus identified the story of Jonah intimately with his own story. This is going to be a big part of what we're going to be talking about. We've just finished a series on the Gospel of Matthew. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 41, here on the screen. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This is Jesus speaking. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the who? The sign of the prophet Jonah. You guys want a sign? You want a miracle? You want to see me pull a rabbit out of a hat? He's like, there will be a sign. And then he says, it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. He continues, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the felly of the great fish. That was slightly funny. Thank thank you for laughing, Roz. I appreciate that. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. This is a bit surprising, let's be honest. This is a bit surprising, and it's not a little weird. If this was not in Scripture, and a preacher like me stood up and said, let me show you that there's an illustration of Jesus' death and resurrection in the Old Testament. And you're like, whoa, where is it? And I said, when Jonah was swallowed by the fish, you would think it was crazy. You'd be like, that is so weird. That is not... But Jesus in a surprising move, in a startling move, actually takes this story and he makes it like the centerpiece of his own ministry. 
He's like, you guys want a sign? You want a miracle? You want me to pull a rabbit out of a hat? I got, I got to tell you something. There will be a sign. And then he identifies himself of all of the stories in the Old Testament. He identifies the center, central part of his mission with a guy that got swallowed by a fish. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says a similar thing. Just a few chapters later, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it. Again, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed two times. Jesus identifies something about his mission, the center part of who he is and what he's come to do with Jonah. And I'm going to say it again. If I said that, if Jesus didn't say that, if I said that, you would think that's really weird. Let's be honest. I would think it's weird. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, verse 30, it's even punchier, it's even pithier. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. This is a total identification. Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, and in a significant way and in an analogous way, I will be a sign to this generation and to the world. And so it Really, we're on safe ground, safe biblical ground, when we say Jesus identified himself and his mission closely with the story of Jonah, which kind of raises the question. You might be thinking, okay, Pastor Asherick, why study the book of Jonah? Now, there are lots and lots of reasons. You could just say we want to study the book of Jonah because it's in Scripture and Scripture is important. Okay, that would be virtuous in and of itself. And I'm going to give you five reasons over the course of the next Today and the next six weeks that we will be looking at the book of Jonah. The first is to better understand God. Which you might think the book of Jonah would be a strange place to get a better understanding of who God is. But as I'm suggesting, you're going to see there is a depth and a profundity here that, that you might have just thought, oh, that's a nice children's story. That's a cute little anecdote in Scripture. In fact, if my study is... is accurate and what I'm learning and and uncovering about the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah is one of the most sophisticated and organized books in the entire canon of Scripture, right up there with books like Revelation. It's a big claim, but I want to try and tease it out for you. To better understand Jesus' own mission, I mean, if Jesus himself identifies so singularly and so powerfully with Jonah, the sign of Jonah, the sign of the Son of Man, well, what's the lesson there? There's a lot. We're going to better understand our own mission, okay, as the Kingscliff Church and as a global Seventh-day Adventist church, to better understand the hostile world. And this will be a big part of what we're going to talk about here. One of the centerpieces of the book of Jonah is Jonah's reluctance and his unwillingness, his, let's be honest, his total lack of desire to go to Nineveh, a sort of apathy and an indifference about them. And a real sense of privilege and security about me, and by implication, us. We're going to have some fun with that one. And then finally, to better understand ourselves. So that's why we're going to do it. Better understand God, better understand Jesus' mission, our own mission, better understand the hostile world, and better understand ourselves. So let's, let's today, all we're going to do today is we're going to set the table. We won't really even get into the text of Jonah in terms of parsing it, but we will read through it all just in a few minutes here. So let's set the context for the book of Jonah. When did this take place? What were the circumstances under which it was written? Well, first of all, the book of Jonah was written in the time of Jeroboam II, the 14th king of Israel, early in the 8th century B.C. So this is 800 years before the time of Jesus, okay? It's an old story. Yes, Macklemore, it's an old story. 
But is it a valuable story? Or are old things necessarily and inherently and always bad? Sure hope not. Jonah mentioned is actually mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you just join me there briefly? Let me show you this. 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. This is the only other place in the Old Testament where Jonah is actually mentioned. 2 Kings chapter 14. And we'll pick it up in verse 23. I'm still reading from this Bible that's not really my main Bible because I can't find my Bible. I'm still holding out hope against hope that it's going to turn up, but it's still lost. Pray with me that I can rejoice when it's found. 2 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He's one of the longest reigning kings in in Israel, 41 years. And he was a total deadbeat like most of the kings of Israel. He was an absolute deadbeat like Jeroboam the first. Verse 24, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit. So the guy's a deadbeat. He reigns for 41 years. But this is interesting. In the midst of this rascal's 41-year reign, Right? And, and Jeroboam II was a bad dude, okay? Not as bad as Jeroboam I maybe, but he was a bad dude, okay? In the midst of this reign, look at this, very interesting. Verse 25, look who shows up. Look who shows up in verse 25. It says, he was the one who restored, and, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Oh, well, this gives us a time and a place and a context and a situation where the book of Jonah takes place. Jonah takes place sometime in the reign of Jeroboam II when there was a bad king, but actually some kind of good things were happening to Israel under the reign of this bad king. And Jonah had actually prophesied positive things about Israel. And even though they were in the midst of having a bad king at the time or a wicked king, some good stuff happened. He's just mentioned, that's it. That's the only thing that's mentioned about him. And then he doesn't show up again until we get to the actual book that is his namesake. Okay? So Jonah himself was almost certainly not the author of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah was was very likely compiled at about the same time that the book of the kings, the kings were compiled, which is sometime in the 6th century. Okay, so Jonah, unlike many of the letters in the New Testament, like where Paul is the author or Luke is the author, the person that's writing is the person about whom the book, that's not the case here. Very likely this story was passed on for oh, 100 to 150, maybe 200 years orally, and then it was written down, perhaps by the same person that wrote 2 Kings. We don't know. The author is never identified. Now, this takes place at a time of imposing Assyrian power, and we'll tease that out more later, but Assyria was, was sort of the superpower of the day, and their various military overtures were encroaching on Israel and Israel's territory. It was a time where Israel was, you know, relatively small, relatively powerless, because they were increasingly distancing themselves from God and His blessing, and Assyria is on a bit of a rampage, okay? So that's the context, that's the situation. The book of Jonah is unique among the minor prophets, okay? There are 12 minor prophets in Scripture, and the book of Jonah doesn't read like any of the others. It's totally unique. 
And it's not just unique because I'm saying it. I mean, literally, you just read it. If you read like Obadiah or you read Habakkuk and then you read Jonah, Obadiah and Habakkuk and Zechariah and Malachi, most of the minor, all of the rest of the minor prophets are like these visions that are kind of hard to follow. Like, you know, an oracle against Edom or an oracle against Israel. These like little sound bites of prophetic information and often judgment against Israel or Judah. Jonah is a story. It's a story. It's unique. It sort of almost doesn't fit with the minor prophets. In fact, one of the things that, that the, assemb- the people that assembled the canon struggled with was, where do we stick the prophet Jonah? It's kind of a story. Like, Daniel has a lot of stories in it. It doesn't really fit in with the rest of the minor prophets. It's a short book, just four short chapters, but hugely organized. I'll get to that in just a second. And very sophisticated. Far more sophisticated than I had thought And I'd like to suggest probably more sophisticated than many of you have thought as well. The punchline, the big story that Jonah, the story of Jonah is, the story that the book of Jonah is telling is this interrelationship between God, Yahweh's wrath, His sovereignty, and His mercy. This is why it's such a timeless book. These are issues that never go away. Why did God allow this but preserve this? This is the very kind of question that, that, for example, I was mentioning Annette there earlier, the very kind of question that comes to the forefront. Yesterday I was having a conversation with Annette, and she was saying to me that, that, that all of her family live a long time. They live into their 80s and into their 90s, but, but by some terrible circumstance, by some, by some freak accident, she gets a terrible disease, and she's in her early 60s. And when things like that happen, or, or I was having a conversation last night, a really heavy but awesome conversation with, with one of our young adults last night, and they were talking to me about suicide and about various things, and, and, and I was opening up to her and saying, two of my closest friends in my life killed themselves. When we're confronted with everything from suicide to a terrible disease or even the use of chemical weapons in, in Syria, we, we naturally have this sort of... Why question? We have this intuitive sense that, what's God doing? Has He fallen asleep at the wheel of the universe? Why is this happening? And, and, and Jonah is filled with this very fascinating interplay of God's promise of wrath, His sovereignty over the world, but then His mercy. And this is going to be so exciting to explore. It is a modern book. Now, this is one of the coolest things. The book of Jonah is absolutely steeped in the imagery of Genesis. Come with me to the book of Jonah, and we're going to read it, the whole book. And as we do it, I want you to see if you can note things that sound very Genesis-like. Okay? I'll sort of speed read it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. I'm curious how long this is going to take. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from Yahweh. 
Then the Lord, Yahweh, sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell asleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country, and from what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what are you doing? They knew he was running away from Yahweh because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon you. (laughs) Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to Yahweh. Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows to him. Now, Yahweh had provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, and he said, In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple." The engulfing waters threaten me. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred in forever. But you, Yahweh, my God, have brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good on. I will say salvation comes from Yahweh. And Yahweh commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of Yahweh and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. 
Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But, Jonah, to, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to Yahweh, is this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Yahweh, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. But Yahweh replied, come on, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Then Yahweh provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant, and it died Then the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to keep living. But God said to Jonah, come on, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. This is a funny story. But Yahweh said, you have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Come on, that's a great story. And I don't know if you have the same feel. It only took us about six minutes to read it. I don't know if you have the same feel that I... But this is a fantastic, wild, weird story that has a total cliffhanger, cliff, cliffhanger of an ending. You're like, what? That's the end? Where's chapter 5? What happens? The book ends with God asking a question that Jonah never answers. And it's a great question. Oh, I can't wait to get to the heart of that question. Did you see the imagery of Genesis there? How many of you spotted a few instances of Genesis imagery in there? Let me give you just 12 of them. There are many more. Look at this. I want to say this before we get right into these. Notice that they're in reverse order. This is interesting. It's a little bit technical, which is one of the things that that leads us to... we, We are certain... That the author of Jonah, whoever he was, perhaps she, the author of Jonah, whoever the author was, was somebody who is extremely organized, extremely sophisticated, and has a story to tell. Now, you might think that the story is the story of a guy that gets swallowed by a fish. That's what you thought the story was. That is a part of the story of Jonah. And I'm going to tell you, that story of Jonah could have been written yesterday. It is that potent, that powerful, and that relevant for the Kingscliff Church. You, you wait and see. This is a little bit technical. But as the, as the story of Jonah moves forward, okay, from Jonah 1, 2, 3, 4, it actually is in a really weird, wonderful, and seemingly purposeful way 
following the story of Genesis 1 to 11 in reverse. Now, let me just remind you of the story of Genesis 1 to 11, 12. Genesis 1 to 11 is the story that, those stories that we all know really well. Creation, and then the fall with the serpent and the tree, then the slaying of Cain, or of Abel by Cain, and then the Tower of Babel, or excuse me, then the, the, the flood and the Tower of Babel. It's a really simple sweep of human history, covering some 1,500 to 2,000 years of human history in about four or five events. Creation, fall, murder, flood, tower. Then Abraham. Then Abraham. From Genesis chapter 12 to the rest of Genesis, chapter, excuse me, uh, chapter 12 to chapter 50, all of those 39 chapters are the story of Abraham. So this is a really cool thing, and if you're paying attention, watch how each of these that I'll go through here will follow the story of Genesis 1 to 12, the call of Abraham, in reverse, like they're two passing trains, right? Genesis 1 to 11 is going this way, and, and Jonah is going this way, the story of Jonah. And this is not by happy coincidence. This is profoundly well-organized, and there's something going on here. Let's just continue to lay the groundwork. Okay, first of all, Jonah refuses to go to Mesopotamia. Assyria is what it was called in the time, but it was Mesopotamia. Jonah refuses to go, but Genesis 1 to 11 ends with God's call to Abraham to come out of Mesopotamia, Babylon. Number two, Jonah, when he's asked, who are you and what God do you serve? He says, I serve Yahweh, I am a Hebrew. Jonah, excuse me, refers to himself as a Hebrew. Abram, Abraham, actually is what we say here, but his name was Abram at the time, is the first person ever called a Hebrew in Scripture. Abram, the Hebrew. I put the references up there if you want to take notes or if you want to get a picture with your phone. By the way, if you ever want any of these slides, you just come ask me, you can have them. Just bring a little drive and you can have my slides, no problem, any of them. Okay, so there's two. I'm going to give you 12 of these. This is a fascinating one. Look at this. My son, when he was proofreading, for me this, uh, proofreading this for me this morning, Landon, he chuckled when he read this, and it, that's the appropriate response. There should be a little chuckle when you read the book of Jonah. There are several appropriate places to chuckle in Jonah, okay? The wicked world is underwater, and the righteous Noah and his family are preserved. That's the story of the flood. Wicked world under the water, righteous Noah preserved in a boat. That is the reverse of the Jonah story. The Jonah story is the wicked prophet underwater, and the worshiping, repenting Gentiles, or the world, is preserved. Total reversal. This is the flood story in reverse. It gets even more amazing. Number four, Noah and his family want to live, so they get in a boat. Destruction is coming. They're like, ah, we want to live. They get in a boat. Jonah wants to die, so he says, throw me out of the boat. It's the reversal of the flood story. Number five, water covers the very tops of the mountains, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 20. You might have noted that in Jonah's poem of repentance there, he says, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. This is not serendipity. This is purposeful. Something's going on here. Number six, 
God remembers Noah in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah. In the poem that, that, that Jonah tells as he's in the belly of the fish, it says that Jonah remembered Yahweh. There's some remembering going on here. God remembered Noah, and Jonah, the rebellious, disobedient prophet, remembered Yahweh. Number seven. There were 40 days of rain in Genesis. There were 40 days of repentance in Nineveh. Number eight. You have this whole tree and snake thing going on, don't you, in Genesis 3. Well, you have this whole gourd, this tree, this leafy tree and worm thing going on in the story of Jonah. Notice how we're getting closer and closer to creation. We started with Abraham, right? Then we went through the flood, and now we're in the Garden of Eden, okay? Number nine, the tree of knowledge was given as a test. In the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. The gourd was taken away from Jonah as a test. Number 10, Jonah wants death after mercy toward Nineveh and the gourd withering. He says, I just want to die. He says it twice. I just want to die, God. Leave me alone. I just want to die after God has shown mercy to Nineveh. Adam and Eve were warned of death, but they want life after taking the fruit. Very different responses to their failings in their tests. Both were given tests. One, the removal of something. One, the addition of something. Adam and Eve's response is, we want to live. We'll try to sow fig leaves. Whatever we have to do to live, Jonah says, just let me die. Second to the last one here, number 11, God is the creator and lover of the earth, both mankind and beast, Genesis 1 and 2. Now we're back in the very heart of Genesis And did you notice how kind of strange it is in the last verse there of Jonah where God says, how can you not be happy, Jonah? There were 120,000 people in that city and there were lots of animals. What a picture. What a picture of a God who seems to care about animals. This should not be a surprise to us. Jesus went so far as to say, A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, but that your heavenly Father is aware of it. You and I drive by roadkill all the time. We don't think anything of it. But every possum that's struck, every kangaroo that is struck, every bird that falls to the ground, God is not only aware of it, and in some sense, if Jonah and the story is to be believed, it pierces God's infinitely sensitive heart. Jonah is dismissive of Nineveh. God is sensitive even to the animals. And then finally, God is the creator of the water and of the dry land. This is at the very beginning of creation. He separates the water from the waters and the dry land appears. And did you notice that when Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, I serve Yahweh who made the sea and the dry land. These are just 12 of some 20 or more connections the, 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 the language and the imagery of Jonah is steeped in Genesis 1 to 11. There's something going on here. There's some bigger story. This is not just a story about a guy who got swallowed by a fish. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And I hope in our next six weeks together that, you will th- that, that something will occur to you that maybe all of Scripture is like this. Maybe there is a depth and a profundity to all of Scripture that we are just passing over blithely and easily, a familiarity that breeds an almost a kind of contempt where we're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know that. I know that story. I know that story. I know that. I've known that story since I was in Sabbath school. 
but do you really know the story? Or do you know it because your mom or your dad put you on their knee or your Sabbath school teacher put you on their knee and told you that story? Have you, have you studied that story? Have you read that study, that story? Have you, have you prayed over that story? All of Scripture is like this. This is not something that's uniquely, uh, the, the, uh, proprietarily the, the, the property of, of Jonah. All of Scripture is like this. You give it a passing glance, you're like, oh, Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath, the man eaten by a fish, swallowed by a fish. And then you go and you take a closer look and you're like, whoa, whoa. I was having a really great conversation in the church parking lot a few days ago with Robbie Morgan, one of the Bible workers from um, the Vine, and he was playing me a new song that he's written. He's like an amazing songwriter. And I wanted to show him my new guitar, so he was, you know, I gave him the new guitar and he was sort of playing on it, and he played this really beautiful song. And I said, man, that is a phenomenal song. It's a song called Go Unafraid that he wrote. It's amazing. And uh, I said, man, Robbie, that song is fantastic. I love that song. And he said, he said, you know, this song, I don't feel like I wrote this song. I feel like this song has sort of found me. And he said, I, I heard this um, statement from a guy, another singer-songwriter named John Foreman. He said, this really fascinating statement. He said, sometimes you're digging and you find what looks like just a little piece of something. But if you keep digging, it's actually a part of a castle. There's a whole castle under there. Many of us are just happy with the little pieces of Scripture. We're like, yeah, 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 I got that little piece. I put that in my pocket. Guy got eaten by a fish. He got spit out, and God is good. Put that little piece in my pocket. But what if that piece is just the top? What if in our just mild little six inches or, you know, ten centimeters of digging, what if, what if there's a castle under there that we just were totally oblivious to? What if we could have excavated something really special? It's going to be great. Cannot wait. All right, let's wrap this up. So we've already mentioned the book of Jonah is unique among the minor prophets, short but organized, very sophisticated. Hopefully you're already beginning to get a feel for the sophistication of this book. This book was written to, I'll say this, we sometimes think old, primitive, old, ignorant, old, illiterate. Ooh, 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 Yahweh, Yahweh. No, 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 no. Clearly the organization and the, 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 the organization and the structure and the poetry of this book, clearly written by a hugely intelligent person, but check this out. Why go to all the trouble to put all of that into it if you don't respect the intelligence of your audience that they are similarly intelligent and will get what you're saying? The Bible is an intelligent book written to intelligent people. Macklemore's implicit critique of Scripture notwithstanding. Oh, we paraphrase the book that was written 3,500 years ago. Yeah, written by brilliant people who had thought long and hard and very carefully about life and about the world and about God. We cannot be dismissive of something just because it's old. It might be ancient, but is it old? God's wrath, sovereignty, and mercy steeped in the imagery of Genesis. A few more there are hints of parody and satire, which is why I said there are a few very appropriate moments to laugh in the book of Jonah. If you find yourself on the verge of chuckling, you're reading it right. There are several moments there where you, the, the author wants you to go. <laughs> There's this little parody thing going on here, this little satire thing going on. We're going to tease that out more. One of my favorite things and one of the most interesting things about the book of Jonah is that unlike almost every other Old Testament book, there is virtually no historical context. 
In fact, if we didn't have that little bit there in 2 Kings chapter 14 where it says that Jonah was around in the time of Jeroboam II, we would be almost clueless as to when this happened. Notice how the book of Jonah starts. I mean, it, just, it literally just starts like this. I turned one page too many. The word, of the, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's it. Where many of the books say, the oracle of the prophet so-and-so, written in the time of king so-and-so, son of king so-and-so, and to the time of king so-and-so, the son of king so-and-so, king, 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 so you know when and where and who and why. Jonah's not like that. We are, there are no historical details to speak of. In fact, check this out. There's only two people named in the whole book. Jonah and Yahweh. Even the king of Nineveh is simply called the king of Nineveh. We don't know his name. The only names that occur in the whole book, it's kind of a generic story, which is part of the reason it's so hugely timeless. Because it's not nailed down to a specific situation in a specific time. According to Jesus, Jesus felt that this story was sufficiently plastic, sufficiently elastic, that Jesus could pluck this story up out of the Old Testament and say, that's, that's me right there. That, this thing that's happening with Jonah, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to suggest that this story is sufficiently plastic and elastic for us to pick it up and say, hey, you know what? That's Kingscliff, 2017. That's Australia. 2017. That's the world. 2017. Final thing here I'll say about the book of Jonah by way of introduction, or actually the second to the last thing, is that it has this really weird, unusual, open-ended ending, doesn't it? Jonah's annoyed that the city wasn't destroyed. He's annoyed that the gourd has come and been taken away, and God asks him a question, and that's it. It's a weird ending, and it's a purposeful ending. It's not an ignorant, ending. No, 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 no. There's great purpose. It's designed to leave you hanging like a scale that's dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. That's not finished. It, it requires you as the reader to finish the scale, to enter into the story. How do you answer the question put to Jonah? It's brilliant. Okay, final thing I'm going to say is just a bit here about the structure of Jonah. Jonah's divided into two sections. You might have noticed that right at the beginning of chapter 3, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So in a really convenient way, you have four chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, that's part 1. Then you have chapter 3, chapter 4, that's part 2. The structure is phenomenal. Look at this. Two main sections, 1 and 2, then 3 and 4. Each section has three scenes. Three very specific scenes. Scene one of section one. Scene two of section one. Scene three of section one. Cut. You know, close the curtain. Intermission. Section two. Scene one. Section two. Scene two. Section two. Scene three. Now, what's even more amazing is that these sections are remarkably similar. In fact, look at how similar they are. There's your two sections. Section 1 is the first two chapters. Section 2, the sections are identical in their basic structure. The, it opens with God and Jonah. Then Jonah with Gentiles. Then it closes with God and Jonah. Two parts, three scenes. The scenes are the very same. And the language that I've used here is the language you have the setup, then you have the buildup, 
Then you have the speak up. And the speak up is simply my language for the point. So you set the table, you set the scene, you get the establishing shot, you then build the drama, and then you make your point. And both part one and part two follow this exact same sequence, three scenes, God with Jonah, Jonah with Gentiles, God with Jonah. Oh, it's going to be great. Can't wait. So why study Jonah? As we've already mentioned, for these reasons, to better understand God, Jesus' mission, our mission, the hostile world, and perhaps surprisingly, to better understand ourselves. Because the question, the question, that open-ended pregnant question is not just a 2,800-year-old question. It's a question for you, and it's a question for me. God puts this question to us, and then the reader, the writer, the way that he, he or she has written, almost certainly a he, but the way that the writer has written requires us to say, well, and your answer might be different than my answer, and my answer might be different than your answer, and your answer might be different than his answer, and her answer might be different than your answer, but the whole point of the book of Jonah is to get you to the right answer. Oh, this is going to be fun. Jonah ended up in the belly of a fish. Likely this won't happen to you unless you're a surfer. Could happen if you're a surfer. But you could end up in the belly of a bish. In fact, you, you may already be there. And if you find that absolutely mystifying and you don't know what I'm talking about, that's kind of the point. What does it mean to be in the belly of a bish? We're going to talk about that for the next six weeks. You may already be there. Yes, Macklemore, the book of Jonah was written a long time ago, but it may as well have been written yesterday. We'll see you next week. Are you looking forward to this? Have I, have I whetted your appetite for the book of Jonah? I hope so. I hope that any of you that had that sort of, oh, really? Jonah? Jonah for six weeks? Jonah? I hope now, if I've done my job, you're like, Jonah for the next six weeks. It's going to be great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, wow. What a great book, Lord. And if, if we've dug here, we've just dug a little bit. And some of us didn't know that we didn't just find a little piece. We didn't just find a little something here. We found the top of a castle. And Father, over the course of the next six weeks, six Sabbaths, as we excavate this castle, this larger, beautiful, challenging story. Father, my prayer is that this would be not just an ancient story, but that we would see it's not an old story at all. It's today's story. It's today's story. Father, my prayer is that the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church and the pastoral staff of this church will hear the story of Jonah. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. 
You can go either to the home page or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.